Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And so I said to myself, you know, this really is not a bad thing to be able to try to replicate in a role-playing game so people maybe can get a taste of what that's like. Or when they watch something like The Voice or American Idol, they can say, what can I live that in some way, shape, or form? And so I really, I really like the idea. Greg and Derek from Session One both have unique origin stories on how they found gaming and how they ended up making their own. We discussed their love of board games and how that impacted the design of their new Limelight RPG. I found the premise of Limelight and many of its mechanics compelling, and I think you will too. I loved hearing about board game mechanics they think should make the jump over to role-playing games. Any views like this are possible because of the support of patrons on Patreon. I want to thank a few of the patrons who offer the highest monthly support. Big shout out to John Harper, Patrick Healy, Craig Chuba, Kevin Smith, Feeling Good Lewis, Nick Saur, Kevin Rademacher, Cody Ravicki, Ambrose Ingram, Wookie Gunner, and Sam Newman. Because of them and the other patrons, you get weekly content from the third floor. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Derek and Greg. Okay, you want to see if you can tell if they're lying to you? Go ahead and roll. Sorry, you missed by three. Uh, yeah, you think they're telling the truth. This is Sean. And this is Navi. And together we're a couple of drakes, the creators of Court of Blades and Dead Bell. When we're not writing games, we're listening to Tabletop Top. Top. Toppy Top Top. <laughs> Don't try that again. <laughs> when we're not writing games, we're listening to Tabletop Talk. Welcome to Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. Your host, Craig Shipman. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we're talking to Greg Lauer and Derek Waite of Session One Studios, the creators of the brand new Limelight RPG. Derek, welcome to the third floor. Hi Craig, thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So you are going to be uh, subjected to the most common question that you've ever been asked on a podcast, which is, how did you find gaming? But we're going to do a little bit different. What I want to do is I want you to imagine the day you discovered gaming. So the day before you knew nothing about rolling dice, pretending to be other people, then suddenly it was put in front of you for the first time. So can we go back there? Um, yeah, I think, um, I think I can probably get back there. Um, so that would have been sometime in middle school, probably seventh grade would be my guess. I can't, I'm not hundred percent sure quite how early that was, but, um, um, I was introduced through to role playing through kind of a uh, after school club that was run by the art teacher in my middle school, um, who had a a, a, a son who was into D and D, um, and you know, D and D was my the first the first game that I played. Uh, it was uh, second edition back then, and um, nice. 
And uh, yeah, after that, it was just kind of um, playing this and that, I guess. So you, you sit down for the first time. How was the game explained to you? Um, I guess it was kind of explained as um, being playing pretend through this fantasy story that, you know, um, was being run by. I, you know, honestly, <laughs> can't say that I remember. Uh, that was I was quite young well, at the point. Looking at, at you, point. Derek, that was only like 15, 20 years ago. So I can't believe you can't remember. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, that was. Uh, uh, yeah, to me it was new then. So, <laughs> well, sure, and 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 you walked away from it, right? So everybody has always had their first session of RPGs, mm-hmm. and I've noticed that you know one of two things happen. One, you go, yeah, that was fine, and then later on is when the hooks got in you, or you walk away from that first session going, I want to do this all the time. So, what was your? What, how did you bounce off of your first session? I think it was more of the latter. Um, we ended up doing quite a bit of that. Like I said, it, it was kind of a after school. I don't know if it was official club or unofficial, but it was kind of an after school thing that, that once a week or so, I want to say. Um, and I became friends or was already friends with some of those folks. And I think that's how I kind of found it. And, um, you know, definitely stayed friends with them. Uh, I grew up in a very rural town in central Florida. Um, and you know, uh, things like hobbies, hobby board games, hobby war games, hobby RPGs were few and far between, uh, and in my specific area, we had to go kind of a, an hour to get to the next big town. Uh, (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah, I played, um, 2E, um, but then also all kinds of other stuff, uh, shortly following that kind of. Anything we could get our hands on. Shadowrun, Battletech, nice. GURPS, um, you know, the the whole gamut. Um, so yeah, that it was it was kind of uh just just we were we were kind of ravenous for it. So we played as much as we could. Probably all badly and you know, as you do when you're <laughs> fourteen years old and you know but, That's uh, what we that's what we did. Yeah, that's what yeah. we did. And, and, you know, I try to explain to people that are a lot younger than me, um, you know, like we didn't have actual plays. We didn't have podcasts, you know, we just were just figuring it out. And, you know, you know, people talk about, you know, I loved second edition D&D. I love third edition D&D. And I don't know if there's a recognition, Derek, that everybody was playing a different game. Right. It was it was a truly localized experience in a good way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, specifically for me, being from such a small town, I think we were maybe the only ones, at least in our age range, that were playing these games. Um you know, uh, a little bit later, my early high school years, we finally got a, a small comic book shop that also had some role playing games, and they had a little space where up up in the attic where you know you could go and play games. And oh, that's fun! That that was fun while it lasted, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> while the town could support them before they you know kind of went out of business. But um, but yeah, I, I definitely looking back now, I know that however we were doing it was definitely not like anyone else. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, that, that's, that's definitely a part of it. So Derek, we're kids. We play a game like that and we go, I like this, right? And we go and devour and spend much time doing it as we can. And then, um, you know, we move on and play other games. What's interesting to me is I'm now talking to adult Derek. 
Mm-hmm. And your perspective is, you know, several decades later, when you look at back at the kid version of you with with much larger eyes now, what do you think set the hooks? Was it just a mat, you know, was it just a matter of that's all that was available or was there something special that was happening that as an adult now you can recognize? Um, you know, I think there is something kind of interesting and unique about playing these sorts of games, especially with people you you like and you get along with. There's a very social element to them. And I, I think that, that that's a big draw and in, in continuing to have that kind of social engagement with with your friends and your peers. And it, it gives you a reason to get together and it's something to talk about. Um, yeah. You know, when when you're at that age where you don't really have a whole lot of world experiences yet, it gives you a shared set of experiences and a shared set of things to to deal with. So that's absolutely. And I think that that carries through that that particular piece of it carries through yeah. to, through to adulthood. It's it's a social element to the sitting down together, playing a game, doing the thing. Um, so I think that's a big part of it for me from the start. So you go through middle school, you play a ton. Uh, does it carry through into high school? Do you guys continue yeah. together and, and keep playing? Uh, you know, again, as, as much as possible, a uh, small group. Uh, we kind of had a, <laughs> a, a forever GM that wasn't me. Um, uh, you know, that, that was kind of nice um, to be able to, to keep experiencing these games. Uh, I remember yeah. playing all the way through when 3E came out um, and then the 3.5 shift. And um, like I said, we played some Shadowrun and Battletech, um, the Street Fighter RPG. Um, you know, nice. Uh, marvel heroic uh you know kind of everything we get our hands on again um and that kind of continued through the beginning of college um and then i kind of had a lot that that was kind of where i hit my break away from the hobby um was after a couple years in college and then i was kind of away from the game for about five years six uh maybe even more than that six or seven years um and then i then i Kind of found that hankering to continue to play um i had also kind of simultaneously found like uh, web comics were a big thing back then i found the uh order of the stick web comic that was um that i think it still is is going on um it's um on the giant in the playground is the website and they had a forum there and i started playing by forum uh playing by post oh wow and then from there, I found other places to play by post and played by post for uh, five or six years, seven years, something like that. No kidding. Um, and then life got busy again. I kind of took a break. Um, I got kind of heavier into board gaming. Um, and and then actually I met Greg uh, through board gaming and uh, found out that he was currently playing the new edition of D&D and uh with a, his public play group and by then when i was thinking about kind of playing rpgs again i was kind of looking to see what was out there uh i had a strong hankering to try apocalypse world after reading a lot of mm. things about it and it sounding like kind of the type of game that 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 i really wanted to play he convinced me to to show up to their their public play at, at the time, I think it was all D&D tables, the four or five different D&D tables, and offered to play this game, and he was sure that I would get a group. And as as it turned out, I did. I, I got a 
Apocalypse World group together. Uh, we played for about a year. Um, kind of wow. two, two campaigns back to back with a little bit of a changeover in players. And then the second group of players um, wasn't quite ready to go back to D&D yet. So then we ran a, a Blades campaign. Um, oh, so that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, so I, and, I'd be interested, Derek, when you, um, I mean, you're coming from very traditional games, right? Good games, mm-hmm. D&D, uh, you know, Shadowrun, uh, GURPS. I want to get understand like was did like Apocalypse World blow your mind a little bit like because that's oh, a huge departure. Absolutely, it absolutely did. Um, I remember reading it. Um, I don't remember exactly what point I, I got to in the book, but I just remember reading it and it just completely opening my mind to, wow, this is saying the things that I kind of felt or thought you know wanted to yeah. understand or you know wanted out of these games um and put it out there in a way that that just clicked for me um i'm the weirdo i read the book at least twice maybe almost a third full-time front front to back cover to cover before i tried to run it um you are me (laughs) um and uh had a great time had a great time playing it um running it uh ended up running at a local convention uh when i was living in connecticut and uh people that i ran it for ended up coming back in future conventions and running sessions of it so that felt good um, oh wow what a compliment that is that's amazing <laughs> um so but yeah it was um i i think i had read about a couple of the other games and they had led me back to apocalypse world um i know that i had i i have interest um, and had interest at the time in playing Night Witches. I really like the idea of that yeah. one. That's one I still haven't gotten to play. Um, it's sitting on my shelf of shame. But um, and masks caught my eye pretty early on as well. Yeah. But I'm also the weirdo in that I always start any series of anything at the beginning. So if there's a book series that I'm late coming to, I'm going to find the first book, or I'm not going to read it at all. Um, so I wanted to go back sure. to the original. Um, apocalypse world and and see what it had to offer before i started doing any of the spinoff stuff so and i'm glad that i did i I love that yeah and i love that approach derek i mean it um i had i had gotten elbow deep at least in reading powered by the apocalypse before i had interviewed uh mcgay and vincent and it was fascinating because at the time you couldn't get it in print and this is like two years ago like so there's just were no print copies available Um, and I ended up, that's changed now, thank God. And I got a copy of it. And what was interesting is that to do it backwards, um, and, and I, and I like your approach, but it was also interesting to see monster of the week, to see, um, you know, masks, to see, um, you know, some of the next steps, uh, dungeon world, right. Uh, from, mm-hmm. from apocalypse would then go back and see what they kept, what they changed, how it evolved mm-hmm. from there. And then you see, you know, a cousin up here, like, you know, uh, Forged in the Dark and Blades in the Dark and stuff like that. And, you know, they're related, right? They're they're not descendants, mm-hmm. but they're, they're definitely one would not have existed without the other. And it, it's absolutely fascinating. So I guess my next big question is um, people listening right now have a very similar story to you, right? They explore, they start with D&D, they explore different games. They create at the table all the time. They're GMing and making new worlds making rules changes because it'll fit the group and so on and so forth. But it's a very small percentage that ends up trying to make something that they are going to put out beyond their own circle. 
So can you give me a sense of when that bug hit you when you said, you know what, I want to do more than just make for my table? I think that kind of came about probably started coming about probably in late 2019. Um, kind of looking for um, ways to get the word out there about other games. So to, to, to digress a little bit and uh, we'll get back to your question, but um, with the public play group that I became pretty heavily involved with um, after going, um, it had gotten to the point where there were, I don't know, 50 or so people showing up every week with five or six Holy tables cow. running. Um, and more people were showing up than we had space to sit because we couldn't get enough people that were willing to, to run the game. Um, and awesome rightfully so, is that? Right? Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a good problem to have. Um, but it was also a little bit frustrating at times because people would, despite it being advertised as a role-playing group, um, pretty much 99 out of 100 people who would, who would show up um, were looking to play a D&D game. So even if I had room in a Powered by the Apocalypse game that I was trying to run, that wasn't what they were interested in. They wanted to play Dungeons & Dragons. That was the one they'd heard about. That was the one they'd, you know watched Critical Role or seen on Stranger Things or or, or or whatever. So it's kind of like, well, how do we um, get this kind of word out there that there are other games out there that also do cool things um, and different things, they, they very, very different things, uh, to try to get some, some traction in that space. And after going over a lot of different options, we kind of landed on you know, maybe it's time to put our particular brand, our, our idea of what a role-playing game can be. Let's kind of put that all together and, and package it as one thing um, and create it. Create it for ourselves. Like, if, if it doesn't exist in the world, create it <laughs> um, was kind of yeah. what, we, what we ended up at. Um, and I think the genesis of that was pre-COVID. Um, and then after COVID hit, we did move to um, online play for, for the first uh, while. Um, and then we started running into the same kinds of issues. People have busy lives and stressful lives, and even with, especially with COVID, um, and scheduling is hard. And uh, you know, it gets to the point where you know we're we're missing more sessions than we are playing because you know life happens to every to everybody in the group. And uh, yep. we decided to focus those energies and efforts on um, just building this game uh, to try to put it out there. And hopefully find some other people who want the same kind of game we want. Sure. No, it's very true. And it, it's, um, yeah, you're talking about the COVID and the rescheduling and stuff. And uh, <laughs> they were saying, I was on Twitter and uh, they announced that they were changing the release date of the D&D movie. And I don't, I, I wish I could give credit to who said it first. It got said a few times but the person was like that's the most like on-brand thing about dnd i've ever seen is rescheduling the release date right yeah, we can't get together at this time how about uh how, what's it look like after christmas <laughs> right exactly, oh that's exactly. funny so greg uh this is long overdue you and i have been talking um and interacting for at least a year now um i think twitter is where we first connected and we did yeah. um we got caught up in each other's threads, uh, having some pretty, uh, really, I think, interesting and in, uh, discussions about about games. So I feel like I should welcome you back to the third floor, but I won't. So I'll welcome you to the third <laughs> floor. How are you? Thank you. It's really good to be here. I appreciate being on. Oh, it's been so much fun. So you're going to get the same question, right? There was a day you knew nothing about this, Greg, and then suddenly it was put in front of you. 
did. It was a long time ago. I am uh, old, as Derek likes to remind me quite a bit. <laughs> so you have to go back quite a bit. I would say it was around 1979, actually. Oh, that's legit, Greg. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> you, you, you even got me beaten. That's not that's not easy to do. I know. I'm going to be uh, I don't mind sharing it. I'm going to be 53 in January. So just a few short months, I'll be 53 years old. So it was way back in 1979. And I'm sure you remember that time when I do kids our age were the big things were Star Wars, right? So I was really into Star Wars. We were probably aware that Empire Strikes Back was going to be out in another year. And uh, video games were really starting to take hold, uh, especially in the arcades. So I would get involved with that. I had a really good friend. His name's Mark. That um, His father was interested in those sorts of things. So I remember he had an old TRS-80 Model 1 that we used to play with. He also had an Atari 2600, which was called the VCS back then. They had pretty much every cartridge imaginable. Um, they had a pinball machine. So that was oh my, my life. I, I had it. I had it pretty good. I would go over to their house on a regular basis and play with all of these things. Both of my parents were into computers, and that's what they did for their career. So oh, wow. I would get to play around with those in, the, um, in their office, in my mother's office especially. Um, but I didn't have a computer yet. I would get one in 1983. So that's what life was like. In 1979, my mother got a new job. And it was a bit of a commute for her. It was about an hour away. And at that new job, she met um, a woman that would become that was one of her coworkers that would become a good friend of hers. Her, um, her friend had a son who was my age, and so she decided one day to invite um, her friend, her husband, and um, this kid, his name's Scott, over for some dinner one night. Never met the kid before, obviously, right? No internet back then, no nothing. Sure. <laughs> so who knows? And I was only nine years old. I remember this day. It's really insane how clearly I remember this. So when they came over, I remember Scott, you know, this young kid, uh, curly hair, a bit unkempt, and glasses. And what he had with him that he brought to play with a kid that he had never known before, never spoken to, was this game called Starfleet Battles. Have you heard oh, of Starfleet Battles before? So I have my copy of Starfleet Battles over here. I know no one else here can see it, but you can see it. Here's Starfleet Battles. Look at that. This is my copy from 1983. He bought this game in 1979 and brought it over to play. This was like nothing I had ever seen before. I was used to playing games like regular kid board games. I was really into Star Wars, like I said. So there was a, two games that I played a lot were um, Escape from Death Star, Destroy Death Star. There was a Mad Magazine game back in 1979. All of those sorts of things. Starfleet Battles is an adult game. Yeah. It, the rule book in there is about 100 pages, and it is jam-packed full of rules. It is it's just, you know. crunchy as shit. Right. Yeah. So, like, you, you can remember, like, in the 70s, right, the type, <laughs> the typesetting, oh, yeah. it's like everything is really crammed in there. And it was just blew my mind, right? Um, I remember having a good time, even though I didn't understand what was going on. It was what it came down to. Um, and it was through Scott that I really got into this aspect of the hobby. There was only the two of us, so we really didn't actually play role-playing games together because you really need more people to do that. But I would say that I did, we did things that were role-playing game adjacent. So you could play Starfleet Battles as two players, so we did that. We also got interested in 
TSR board games. They were making board games at that time. So we played three of them. There was Snit's Revenge, The Awful Green Things from Outer Space, and Dungeon. He also... Okay, well, he, no, 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 hold yeah. on. I, so you're the, my first guest that has also played Awful Green Things from Outer Space. <laughs> Have you played Awful Green we, Things from oh Outer Space? Oh my God, like we played the shit out of that game. It had the little chits and the paper map exactly. and everything. Oh, that was TSR, though? It is, it's TSR, I yeah. I did not know that. Steve God, Jackson bought it game. out later, but TSR I was, was the I one. I remember it as a Steve yeah. Jackson game, no kidding. Yeah, they oh, bought wow. it out later, but it was, TSR was the ones who published it. It was Tom Wham originally. Isn't the, that uh, Is the designer of that damn. game. And it's perfect for two kids, right? Yeah. We're both only children, and they're both two, that and Snit's Revenge are both two-player games. So we used to play those. He also had Dark Tower, which was fantastic, and I loved playing Dark Tower. He also had a Dungeons and Dragons electronic game that's called like the D and D Electronic Labyrinth game, where you had these metal figures that you would move around trying to be able to get to the dragon and the little red walls that you put yeah, on exactly. the grid. Yeah, so he had that. I do remember a number of years later, he managed to buy the top secret game and we messed around with that, at least probably made characters and talked about it. I was getting into James Bond because my parents really liked James Bond and they took me to see all of the uh, um, Roger Moore movies that came mm -hmm. out after M Moonraker and which isn't the best. <laughs> That's Roger bad, Moore movie to start with. <laughs> right, exactly. But it was great. Like, as a kid yeah. with Star Wars, right? It's a very sci-fi oriented. So, um, so Top Secret was really interesting. But what's interesting is, is that I don't remember us really doing a lot of D&D. &D. I'm sure that he had it, and I'm sure that we must have talked about it. But to rewind a slight bit, my introduction to role-playing games that I fondly remember was about a year or two after I met Scott. It was around 1980, I believe, when I was in fifth grade. And my friend who I'd spoken about earlier, Mark, I remember one day he brought the Holmes basic Dungeons and Dragons into class. And we tried to play it and we're probably terrible about it. My, my mem memory is, is that we had figures and we moved them around on graph paper. And that, that's about all that I remember. But I was fascinated by it. So I went after that and I bought... Um, the basic set, and his father, that was his father's copy. So his Holmes copy, he probably bought it in the late 70s. And the one that was out at that time was, it was around 1980 or 1981. So I got the Moldvay set, and I looked through it, and I tried to understand it, but I always had a lot of difficulty with it. And I think it's because I'm very rules-oriented, and I would always think in my mind, it's like, well, what happens if the player wants to do this or they want to do that? And I'd look through the rules, and... I could never figure out how to do it. But the game always fascinated me. So throughout years, I bought that. I bought the expert set. I bought the first edition AD&D book. So I have the player's handbook and the DM's guide and the monster manual. I have tons of modules for all of that stuff. And I probably try to play it every now and then. But I remember always feeling like, you know what? It's just much easier to go to the arcade or to sit at my house and yeah. play in television and just play video games. And that's it. So, and I would get any of that sort of, um, that sort of feel instead by hanging out with my friend Scott, because I wouldn't see him all the time. Right. As I think I mentioned, he lived an hour away. So he lived where my mom worked. Right. Um, it was an hour away. So I wouldn't get to see him until, you know, every few months, but then we would have a long weekend together because we'd spend the night together and, you know, sleeping over and then we'd get, you know, play hours of Dark Tower or whatever. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> um, so it's really interesting that 
I kind of bounced off it very early. Like I was sure. into it and I wanted to be able to play it. And I still have all of those books and I would always read them and really try to be able to understand it. But I think a combination of really not being able to figure out the key component to make that game work, which is if you don't know what you should do, just make it up. And that didn't occur to me when I was young. So I was interested in it from the lower point of view and reading it and understanding the rules that were there. But um, I remember playing it once when I was in high school. I went to a public library and played it there. And I remember it being a very funhouse dungeon sort of experience. I remember there was one <laughs> room we went into and you stepped on a tile and then you roll a dice, you roll a die and see what happens. And I think my strength like went up to 18, it was, it was, <laughs> which is what happened at those times, right? And I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is kind of dumb. So um, yeah, I really actually was aware of it and it was involved in my life, but I did not play it that much until much, much later. So looking back at it, Greg, when did it really click for you then? So like you're immersed in the hobby as a as a in a big tent sort of way right? right you're playing a lot of different board games you're you're consuming the media um you're like me i like i would sit i i i it's embarrassing how little dnd i've played but boy <laughs> oh boy the hours that i flipped through that expert manuals and through the monsters manual i just hours and hours of flipping through it yeah, exactly. And I know all of those, you know, illustrations, oh. like some people love them, right? All the little silly cartoons and the more serious, you know, wonderful art in that. And I remember it and was always wonderfully inspired by it and always wanted, I was always intrigued by it. But I yep. think, as I kind of implied, I was really into video games and still am. And that really took over so much of my life, both um, throughout high school and throughout um, in college as well. I had, and the other thing that's interesting that I've learned is that all of my very close friends that I met in college, they all played Dungeons and Dragons at time too, but we never Isn't ended up playing it together, yeah. which was so interesting. So it was, I can tell you that it was only about 10 years ago in 2010 when I was wow. introduced to the, it was when I was introduced to the designer board game hobby, my, my friend Rob. And he introduced my wife and I to Agricola. And oh it was just God, like game. it was just like when that time that Scott came over and showed me Starfleet Battles that my mind was blown again because I'm like, I've never seen anything like this and how to do it. And then I got interested in the board game hobby. And because of that, I said, you know, maybe I really should try to actually play that Dungeons and Dragons game and all of those supplements and all of those modules that I have on my shelf. Maybe I can figure it out now. And that's when I started to take a closer look at it. And that was probably more or less, I started to get into it, I would say, a few years before 5th edition actually came no out. No kidding. So that's when I, I still had played it a little bit here and there with my friends. It, it was always a disaster for whatever reason. Yeah. We'd get together, we would be interested in like the rules and the crunchiness of the rules. But then if we had um, the wives or significant others were with us, they like didn't understand what that aspect of it and why we were interested in it, it was devolve and it would never go any further. Yeah. But yeah, it was a few years before Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition came out that I made a really conscious effort to be able to get interested in it again. And that's when I also started going to this public gourd grain uh, group that Derek had mentioned and getting involved with it and really interested in that aspect of it. And I, and I put a lot of attention into it. And 
played about five or six years straight of Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition, starting with the playtest before that, D&D Next. That's when I started to really look at it, trying to understand what was going on, getting involved in the playtest so that could help shape it. And that's where I started to really start to understand how that game worked and how to get it to, how to, get it to play. So out of curiosity, Greg, when did you start cheating on D&D and, and when did she first or he first show up? It was Derek. <laughs> was it? Was it? So it was Derek in Apocalypse World and that kind yeah, of stuff? Yeah, it was. I Probably around the time I met Derek or maybe. So I, there's one thing that I do remember or maybe a little bit before that. I did come across from listening to other podcasts. One podcast that I was listening to was the Geek Nights podcast, which you may be familiar with, with Raymond Scott. They did a podcast on the burning wheel. And I remember listening to that and they were very, very hip on burning wheel. So when that got kickstarted in order to be able to bring out the codex, I decided that that was a time to be able to finally get that. I got it. It came to my house. I opened it up. It was again, it was like Dungeons and Dragons. I'm like, I do not get how to play this game. There's no monster manual. There's no DM's guide. I don't understand how we're supposed to play it. It went on the shelf. And I said to myself, I bet eventually I'll figure this out. But yeah, and in fairness, Greg, Burning Wheel's a lot. That's <laughs> right. a lot of game. It, it's definitely trying to jump from Dungeons and Dragons, which is a, you know, a certain type of experience to try to understand what's going on in Burning. It just wasn't to happen. But that was at least my first inkling. I believe that there was this other type of way to play role-playing games that was not the traditional way that I was playing through Dungeons and Dragons. I had also played some Trail of Cthulhu. One of my friends really liked that. Very nice. So I played a few games of that and enjoyed the gumshoe and what things it was trying to do differently, what things it was trying to um, improve on where people wanted to do something different with Dungeons and Dragons they couldn't quite do with the way that the mysteries are held. Um, but it was really Derek and that started to get me thinking about it when it, it was very odd that we played board games together for years. And I don't know if he even knew, like, to, I don't remember if I told you, like I was like involved in this public board game and public Dungeons and Dragons group and doing so that cool. regularly. And I, so I really can't remember when we finally said, you know, you, you should come. I, I guess there was a point where I found out that he actually had played D and D years ago. And I'm like, you know, you should come and play. <laughs> oh, that's fun. So guys, the insider inside series is my opportunity to sit down with designers developers, artists, writers, and creators, and learn about how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, and the methods for crafting their creations. And that's what we're going to do with Greg and Derek today. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about really their big game coming out, Limelight. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, friends. And welcome to the Writer's Room, where you can find all sorts of adventures, antics, and escapades for the 7th C TTRPG. I'm Zoe Jackson. I'm Evan Ackley. And I am Patrick Keefe. And we are here to tell you the stories of 7th C. If you enjoy actual play podcasts featuring adventure, drama, and swashbuckling heroism, 
using music and dynamic sound effects, then you've come to the right place. Not only do we bring you stories from our 7th Sea gameplay, we also discuss the mechanics of the game in special episodes called Notes with the Narrator. To learn more, our Linktree link will be in the bio, and that will help you find us on your favorite podcatcher, as well as support us through our many different platforms. Won't you join us? So Limelight. Now, I think we should start off by kind of uh, a blurb. Let's talk about how these two gentlemen describe Limelight. So in Limelight, players are high school students who share a deep love of music. These young people have created a band to showcase their unique talents. Influential voices threaten to derail these plans. Family, friends, schoolmates, teachers and strife within the band's close circle create obstacles to achieve their big break. Will they successfully overcome these issues and remain loyal to each other? Or will the problems tear their group apart? Now, I got to tell you, what I love about that is it is a perfect example of the possible, right? So the touchstones, uh, I bet a lot of them I could guess. Um, and it's really neat for you guys to see the opportunity to go, you know what? This is a role playing game, but I want to go backwards a little bit. Let's start off with um, somewhere to talk about your origin stories. And I'll let either, you know, either you, Derek or Greg, talk about this. If you had to forensically go back and find the first seed, when was the first conversation and who brought up the idea of we could make a role playing game about a band? So I'll jump in I know here. when it happened. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? All right, Derek? Go for it. Tell, uh, tell, tell us, Derek, when it first when it first jumped in. I'll jump in here and then and then and Greg can fill in anything that I'm missing or getting wrong. Um, so this was pretty shortly after we made that decision to to make a game. Um, and we were kind of yep. talking about, OK, well, what, what, what could this game be? What what do we have? A burning desire to see like what kind of game do we think needs to exist that doesn't already exist because you don't want to reinvent the same old game and i don't know we were talking about a lot of different things um that were going on and somehow i hit on the idea i think of making this a game about a band um i don't know if greg is gonna get mad at me for sharing this but we were kind of just tossing ideas around. And one of the things that we had talked about was we, we, we were, like I said, simultaneously talking about this issue with getting game groups to have enough GMs, to have enough players, to have consistency, and all of the things that can come up in life that can make a game group fall apart. And I was actually on another podcast where we, where we talked about this, like about trying to get DMs to be able to run D&D &D yeah. and for them to be able to step up because I was constantly having problems in our public role-playing group and every time we would grow to be able to get people to be able to run the games. Um, and I kind of, I think it was off the cuff, one of us said something or we kind of mutually came up with this idea of like being in a role-playing group, like we could make a game around that the obligations that players Ooh, have that's interesting to their real life trying to make it to the game but also wanting to commit to playing the game and doing the game we kind of made this this kind of like off the cuff 
almost jokey, like, we could make this a meta game about tabletop gaming. Um, yeah. And then from there, I think we kind of made the jump to it. That's that's a lot like how it is to be in a band um, and some other things that came around as well. And as luck would have it, the band thing really hit a nerve, struck a nerve for Greg, because I know that that was a concept that he had thought of many years ago as kind of a computer game that he kind of wanted to make happen. But, uh, you know, obviously hasn't. <laughs> but um, it didn't happen. Someone else did it. Greg. <laughs> Someone um, else did it. And it's called Rock Manager. You could go and play it. If you like. <laughs> they beat me to it. But uh, yeah, that, that was that was pretty much, I think, the the. The basic path of it, Greg. Did I get anything? Is wrong? that how you remember it, Greg? It is, and it really spoke to me because I, um, I've been in a band before. I started playing the guitar um, in 1989 at the age of 19, and ever since then, um, pl- I've always wanted. I've wanted to be in a band ever since I started to learn how to play the guitar. I got interested in music when really interested in music when I was in high school, and um, just by the time I got into college, I had met a number of people who were like, yeah, you should just pick up the guitar. So I finally did. And um, I was really excited by it. The people I would meet, um, I would play with, but we never really formed a band. We'd sort of jam around a bit. There was, um, I have a very good friend by the name of Drake who really taught me everything that I know about how to play, uh, how to play guitar. And, uh, but I, you know, we lived farther. We we lived apart. Um, I live in Connecticut. He lives in Tennessee. Um, so after we uh, graduated from college, we just you know went our separate ways. We're still very close friends, but there's no way to be able to do a band together. So in the mid '90s, I actually did start a band with someone that I had met at one of my first jobs, and um, we made a really good go of it. And we spent a couple of years, you know, really working on this creating songs, making a demo tape and then actually and actually playing out. And so this idea really spoke to me because I think that I'm not the only one that's intrigued by that idea of um, being able to make music, being able to have people enjoy what it is that you create and the allure of fame and fortune and recognition. And so I said to myself, you know, this really is not a bad thing to be able to try to replicate in a role-playing game so people maybe can get a taste of what that's like or when they watch something like the voice or american idol they can say what can i live that in some way shape or form and so i really i really like the idea so you've got some strong components right out of the gate right you've got uh characters Right. And, and I mean, capital C characters, not player characters. Characters are in bands, right? That's you tends to be very unique and colorful people that tend to do that. And you also have obstacles uh, and no shortage of obstacles. What I was curious about, because, you know, you talk, Greg, about, you know, the forming of a band and, and Derek, you alluded to this. There's a lot of different points in people's lives where this could happen. But you chose high school. So, Derek, can you give me an idea like when? Did you guys hone in on high school kids doing this versus college kids or the, you know, the IT department at the, at the local tech company doing it? Like there's all types of moments when bands are created, but high school is pretty specific. Sure, sure. Um, I think a big part of the reason that we kind of landed on that is, as you said, there's, there's a number of different places where, where this could happen. And 
to make a little digression, um, I also play a little bit of music. I, I play a little bit of bass. Um, and I had a similar story to Greg's, except we didn't make it anywhere near even that far. Um, but I did a lot of jamming around with people. I had a, a, a lead guitarist friend who kind of, we did a lot of jamming together. We wrote a few original songs that are really not all that great, but you know, um, we had these ideas that we were going to make it big. You know, we had a drum machine and a guitar and a bass and, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, we were on the search for a singer and, you know, things kind of fell apart, but, um, but yeah, so back to, back to that question, you know, there are any number of places that that happened for me after college, actually. Um, and for Greg, it happened in college, but the no, it was reason... after college as well, actually. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, <laughs> um, Very the similar. reason we chose high school students is because of those subsets. Um, and this kind of goes into one of the mechanics that we really are kind of one of the, the keystones to our game um, is loyalty. Um, so there's this mm. loyalty stat that you have that represents how loyal you are right now to the band um, as a whole. Um, nice. <clears throat> as opposed to any pretty particular individual member. And one of the things that we wanted to model is that that loyalty ch can change over time. That as things influence you one way or the other, as things are going really well with the band, you might become more and more loyal as things are going well, or as things are uh, stressing you out or, or giving you more and more obligations in the outside world. It might pull you away from the band that hurts your loyalty. So we had this idea of, of that sh that's that needed to be able to, to move. And um, similar to masks, we didn't want that to be a singular move where you have your, your stats right. and then the, the total is changing as, as the loyal changes. So we, we, we took that, you know, that, uh, idea from masks that stats would shift and part of that resonated with us from masks because it is when you're young um when you're a teenager when you're coming of age that you are more susceptible both for, for many reasons um to changes in your attitudes and the changes in the way that you see yourself and the changes in the way that you present yourself and that you act um which isn't quite the case if you're a, a 40 something or 50 year old it person trying to make it as a band right you're kind of set as who you are um and then the band is just this thing so it we we thought it allowed the band to be more of a focus of it's also part of each of these characters identity in a way that isn't quite the case as you get older and you have more and more things that are your identity as well and, and Greg, did, did that resonate immediately when that came up? Like, was it was it a debate? Like, maybe we do high school, maybe we don't do high school. It's just like, oh, my God, yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, I think that's what happened because but it did take a little bit. It didn't take a long time to get to that, but it, we definitely didn't originally start there. I have, um, especially because I was in my early 20s when I was in a band. So that probably was what I was thinking of. Um, one of the things that's really a touchstone for me for creating this game is this is Spinal Tap. So those are older folks as well. So nice. I would tend to think about that when I did this. But as we continue to talk about it and we started to think about this loyal stat and how it was important to us to be able to model this way that you feel about the band. And especially even when I was in my own band, because I did go through this arc where originally I was really, really into it and into the band. 
and the people I was playing with. But as time went on, I started to actually get a little bit tired for a variety yeah. of reasons of the people I was playing with. But I still had loyalty to the band. And I wanted to hang in there in order to be able to see how far we could go and whether or not I could realize some of these goals that I had set up for myself. Um, and after Derek had made the suggestion to be able to say, you know, this really will work well if it's high school students, I definitely said, yeah, I think that will be easier for people to be able to get their heads around if they start thinking of them as younger people who are more impressionable in this way rather than older people who are probably a little more set and dedicated in the way that they think about their goals. Yeah. And it's, you know, you also get a chance to do, you know, people talk about masks all the time and go, you know, uh, you know, masks is a great superhero game. I hear that talked about all the time, and, 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 but it's a very specific superhero game, right? You have to embrace the young, the high school, the youth aspect of it. And it sounds like that was very significant for you guys. Now, when we talk about the progression of, of game design, um, in my mind, at the very beginning, I often thought about it as, as kind of a linear graph, you know, slowly, you know, stepping up. But the more I talk to creators, the more I realize it's a series of plateaus. And one of the first plateaus is at the very beginning where something something clicks. And I, I'm wondering, Derek, do you remember kind of the the initial spark that clicked that said, this is more than just us having a couple beers and talking about shit. This is like, you know, damn it. We're going to spend some time on this. We're going to do this. Do you remember the spark that made you decide? Yeah, like this is going to be a project. This may not have been the absolute first step, but I think one of the first biggest steps that really made us feel like we were kind of doing going out and forging something a little bit, a little bit outside of the normal. I, I don't know. Obviously, we didn't invent a whole new language or anything right. but, um, <laughs> one, one of the first things came about because i know that we had been having conversations and as greg said we're, we're both big board gamers we go to board game conventions we play play rpgs and board games at conventions and and everything and his friend rob that introduced him to board games if, if it's the same robin i think it is um we played some rpgs with him and we had conversations and we talk about rpg theory and things like that and one of the things that we heard as feedback from people who played pbta games played a, a session of apocalypse world or anything like that was the one thing they kind of missed was rolling big handfuls of D, D dice the the funny dice um and and you know we had been talking about it a little bit and and i know that this was probably bigger on, on greg's radar than mine because that didn't bother me quite as much i don't key into that that same like tactile response but uh, i understand that it's a thing for a lot of people and he he was like I'd, I'd like to do something with that and one of the things that that we both recognize that we don't particularly like about the polyhedral dice is when your dice get better and they get bigger they get more swinging so you yes get a better chance of a higher number but then there's also a better chance of a larger range of numbers. And um, after wrestling with that for a little while, and that not sitting well with us, as board gamers, we're used to when you improve something about your your player faction or your character or whatever, it, it actually makes them just kind of better, not right. maybe better. Um, after wrestling with that for a while, we had the idea to uh, flip the dice upside down. 
Um, and uh, okay, so in in limelight, you're aiming for low numbers, and when you upgrade your dice, your dice get smaller, so you become Very more cool. likely to succeed, um, and more likely to hit your target numbers as your dice get smaller. Um, and then we pretty quickly, if not immediately, tied that to the loyalty mechanic. So the more loyal you are to the band, the smaller your loyalty die is. Um, And your loyalty die isn't used for everything, but it is used whenever you um, collaborate with another player, um, which is is our Mm -hmm. helping mechanic. So you may be rolling 2d6 plus stat, um, but if you're helping, you give them one of your loyalty die. So if you're very loyal, you may have a D4 loyalty die, and they'll keep the lowest two. Um, Interesting. If, you're, if you have a, the worst loyal, you have a D10 loyalty die, but it's still helpful because it still can roll better than a six, or lower than the six in this case. Right. But it's less likely to be helpful because you're not as loyal. So I think when that mechanic really kind of clicked into place for us, that's when we felt like, Okay, we're really on to something here because it kind we're of solved to make several of these. Yeah, exactly. Several of these issues that we were struggling with kind of clicked and uh, came together. It's really cool, and and it sounds like a very neat and an elegant inverse of the Savage Worlds rule of four, right? Um, so the way that uh, you know that they address that is they just have basically the same target number, and higher mm-hmm. is better. But I love the idea of shrinking the variability because. And people on the podcast or listeners to the podcast. No, I'm not the biggest D20 guy. Um, And and my biggest issue with D20 is the swings. And, you know, when and there's other systems that do this, too, where it's, you know, stat plus a die. And, you know, depending and and part of it is I'm a pro I'm an ex programmer, uh, you know, a big board gamer, too. So systems, you know, are very important to me. I, I, I recognize that, you know, when it's stat plus a D20, your stat doesn't mean shit. (laughs) <laughs> right because it's the d20 right. that matters right and, and what's cool is that for you guys to use the dice as improvements to tighten that variability i think that's very interesting it was a very early mechanic for us and very yeah. very important to be able to make that work and we we just spent quite a lot of time in order to be able to refine it and to make sure that it works throughout the game the game actually has two phases And Derek's been speaking about what we call the preparation phase of the game, where the band spends time in order to be able to deal with issues and obligations that are affecting them and the band in order to prepare for a live performance, which is called, amazingly enough, the performance. (laughs) How clever. Exactly. (laughs) And the mechanic for doing a live performance is completely different from what you do in the rest of the game. That's actually a dice pool instead of rolling two dice and adding them together. So which addresses the using tactile this, thing that Derek just right, talked about. That's exactly. Cool. So that was that was really important to me because most of the dice pool games like um Tales from the Loop or Blades in the Dark use only D6s. In our dice pool, because of the way that we've been able to manage this, you can mix the die types. Oh, that's cool. And if you have the better loyalty than another band member, then the chances that you are going to be able to help the entire band succeed because it's all based on your loyal stat and how loyal you are to the band is going to overall help the entire band potentially put on a great performance. So you guys start playing with this and um, 
you know, the more I'm thinking about this, I think I was incorrect in saying it's an inverse of Savage Worlds because it really is about lowering the variability, which the rule of four in Savage Worlds doesn't do. Well, what you're doing now that I'm starting to grok it a little bit and start to really think about it is is increase increase the influence of the character choices for creation and progression, decreasing the variability, which which um, is different, right, than going up a die size in Savage World. So that's that's pretty interesting. You guys hit that level, though, and you go, all right, this is something right. We've solved this problem. We flip the dice. We're going low instead of high. D4 is better than a D10. You iterate, the two of you talk about it. What was the next plateau? When did you make a big jump and go, oh, like now now we're at level three? Okay, I, I think the next one for us was we had been struggling for some time about um, what experience was going to look like in our game. Like how how characters gain experience, like for what things. The character does should they gain experience we'd looked at a lot of different games and obviously we've, at this point we've played tons and tons of different games uh we even talked about like maybe we don't do experience maybe the characters don't progress and improve in our game um and we were even testing the game without experience in it we, we, we were, really yeah. had tabled mm -hmm. it and sort of figured we would eventually sort of figure it out because the game worked without it. Um, people that were playtesting, we didn't need to be able to have that piece in to say, okay, in order to be able to encourage you to be able to do these things, we'll give you these bonuses. We just relied on, here's what your goal is, here's mechanics in order to be able to achieve the goal, and we had tabled for the time being, well, here's, how you, here's what will happen, here's how you get rewarded when you do it. And I think we had both, obviously, kind of had it in our mind for, for the whole time, because... Um, I don't know that either one of us have played a game that worked differently, that, that at least one that did have advancement to where you gain X number of experience points and then you gain a level. And we looked at things like blades and character experience, like end of session experience based on what the characters do. And there were a lot of things, there are a lot of things that we really like about that. Um, we looked at um, Apocalypse World's highlighting. Um, uh, yep. We kind of had a lot of interesting conversations about how that could work in our game and what it would model in our game that, you know, it might be different from what it models in Apocalypse World. And what we finally somehow, I don't, I don't remember the how of this, but what we finally kind of landed on was that we, so we also have this mechanic in our game, as Greg mentioned, is issues and obligation. So uh, at character creation, each character is going to start with three issues, which are broad things like... My parents are on me to get better grades in school. Um, the baseball coach is mad that I've missed practice. Um, you know, anything like that. Um, um, something about another band member that you're having some strife specifically with that member. Um, <clears throat> and as the game progresses, there are mechanics that will cause you to take to mark obligations. And so you'll mark an obligation on any of your existing issues. Or create a new issue if, if fictionally that makes more sense. Like, oh, this is the new thing. This is the school bully. I'll make an issue about the school bully and mark an obligation. And we kind of had had that in place, you know, to model that other side, right? Like, you want to deal with these obligations, um, but you also want to, like, make sure you're as loyal as possible to the band. So you have this push and pull. You're trying to make these difficult decisions during the preparation so that you're ready for this performance. And it kind of came to us that 
we could create a mechanic where if you have an issue that has two or more obligations marked on it, the band can challenge you on that issue. Oh, that's cool. And they can say, this whole thing that you're dealing with, with your baseball coach, and it's causing you to miss band practice, you need to figure that out. We're going to challenge you to fix this issue. Um, So then there are mechanics in the game that you can clear those obligations. um, And once you've cleared all the obligations on on a challenged issue, you can then resolve that issue. When, When you resolve an issue, you gain a level. So that's it. Oh, that's cool. There's no XP. It's every time. Oh, that's well, what does that mean? So if a, if the band it challenges an issue or challenges one of your issues, um, but you don't want to resolve it, like let's say you know they're they're mad about the way that your girlfriend is interfering with the band, you can John Lennon this thing and say I don't care. Um, right. She matters to me, and you can just dismiss that issue. Um, in either case, you cross Does that mean the issue it, it's, out. it's off the table? The band can't come at it anymore? Or? Correct. But whether it's, whether it's resolved or, or dismissed, you cross it out of your character sheet. And you'll never see that oh, issue wow. arise again. You'll never gain more obligations on it because it's, it's, it models that you've figured out a way to deal with the obligations around it without actually getting rid of the issue. Interesting. You don't get the you don't get the the level you don't get to level up um, if, right. you, if you dismiss the issue, um, but uh, but yeah that 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 was kind of a big click for us. It was like well that this is the main part of our game is the band, the players, the issues. You deal with these issues, you get rewarded with. What we really liked about it was that it's not actually up to you as to what right. you get these improvements for. It's so that also works with the fact that. Um, kids and how they can call they can um peer pressure pressure on you so it's really what they decide and you can only have as i think derek said you can only have one challenged issue at a time so if you don't want to deal with that or it's stuck there until you decide how you want to resolve it so either you resolve it or you dismiss it and when you dismiss it it actually costs a band resource that's renown and renown is the resource that you need to be able to gather and you need to be able to get to a certain total in order to be able to win the game our game actually has a win condition so if you don't want to deal with it anymore but you don't want to do the work in order to be able to take care of it properly so that all parties are happy you can get rid of it but it means it fictionally means the entire band suffers because of this. And to be able to explain fictionally how that manifests itself, I think we find pretty exciting. So there's a lot of things I love here. One, had you never told me you guys love board games, I would have accused you of it now. Right. So it's really (laughs) neat to see that interlocking systems in play um that is truly board game inspired i really really i really like that i like the twist on the trigger xp mechanic um i I really love holding up the idea of the group playbook right the the band that the band is a character the band is the central thing the the crew that holds us together and the uh, this is really interesting guys this is really really (laughs) interesting and what I'm appreciating the most is 
you've skimmed but haven't stolen which i think is really interesting right so i could i could hear influences from a lot of different games coming into play here but i don't i don't hear or see a direct port so the two of you guys are hammering this out coming up with some really unique ideas um creating some very interlocking mechanics which i think is super cool something that i've always loved about blades is that interlocking mechanism how mechanics you know touch across the board with each other who's the third person who is the first person that got into your little mind and became a part of this conversation who was the first person exposed to limelight out of the duo or the five you know the third fourth fifth sixth person who is the first person who experienced limelight outside of the two of you discussing it because what you guys are going through at this point happens all the time there's a lot of people there were there's two guys, two gals, two people that, you know, shooting around ideas and all oh, that's cool. We can solve it this way. And then it just dies and no one ever sees it. No one ever plays it. No one ever experiences it. And nobody ever has an outside thought about it. But that's not what happened with the two of you. So I want to get a sense of when it became more than just the two of you when it got exposed to the world in a very small way so that would be um some of our uh, one of the one of the members of our public play group who played some with us after we went virtual for covid he was one of our first play testers um and someone who greg befriended through twitter um i'll let you throw that shout out greg um was also one of our first play, play testers and uh They've just been so supportive. Um, excellent. Now you say the first playtesters, Derek, real quick, though. Did they play with just did they play with the two of you or did you hand them something and they created their own playtest group with us? With us. We played. With Got the, it. OK. Yeah. Um, uh, so we took turns at the beginning. One of us would run the game. Um, one of us would play as a character in the game, you know, as we were kind of. Uh, figuring these things out yeah uh th those are those those are probably the first couple people to to play i think it was i think it was different for us because up until then neither of us had an interest a strong interest in making our own role-playing game i think mm. there's a lot of people that i think that probably i that um you've interviewed that have been doing it for a long time they've had this interest in doing it yep. when they were young and Maybe they would do some things when they were younger and then they wouldn't quite work out or, you know, because they're younger, they didn't turn into anything. And then finally, once they're older, they start to be able to have those ideas come to fruition. And for for both of us, it really wasn't something that we were necessarily drawn to do, I think. It's like, uh, oh, at least crap, I, I, I don't want to speak for Derek, <laughs> but for me, it, it really wasn't um, until... You know, COVID-19 hit yeah. and, you know, I'm starting to think about all of these things. And as, as Derek has mentioned, I'm trying to figure out, you know, how to make the public group that I'm co-manage work a little better. I'm seeing some of the difficulties that we've had in being able to uh, continue to have games being played. It's like, what kinds of what can we maybe do in order to be able to solve some of these problems? And that's when I finally was like. Eh, maybe we should just design our own game, expecting Derek to say no, but he stupidly said yes. <laughs> and here we are. So that's why. So I think because of that, maybe, and because we hadn't had experience doing this before, we yeah. really kept it to ourselves for quite some time. And that's, so that's why it's kind of a hard question to answer. It was like, well, who was the first person? 
well, but but it makes it more significant, right? So you guys kept it insular for a long time. And wh- where I'm driving to is to understand what happened when you let somebody else play with your toys. So what did you see happen when this game wasn't just yours? Because anytime someone plays a role-playing game, they take a piece of it with them. It becomes part of them. And I'm really interested to get a sense of, like, again, the two of you have been bouncing this back and forth. You guys are aligned. You're arguing. You resolve those arguments and such. Then you add other players. And, and what happened then? I think it was really interesting for them because so many role-playing games are very fantasy-based or they're sci-fi-based or they have these strong themes that really direct the game a certain way in a certain direction. And our game is a much more personal experience. Yeah. And we're asking people to think about what is it that is important to your character and what is it that your character is willing to do or perhaps even sacrifice in order to be able to make this band successful. And I think that was a different way of thinking for a lot of people than they were used to. So I think that we've heard some comments like, for example, that um, they didn't feel that they were big stakes. And that was a little bit difficult for them to wrap their heads around. I had someone when I talked to them about it saying that, you know, it just seemed too normal. Like, Mm. I think that uh, there's a number of people who want to play role-playing games because it allows them to be able to act out um, very obvious sorts of fantasies per se. And I, I, I mean that you get to be, you know, a a hero in a, in a fantasy world, or you get to, you know, wield a a ray gun and be able to shoot things or to be able to take on a really impressive, oppressive empire. And our game is really this very personal thing that we're just asking you to be a normal student who is trying to just do what so many young people want to do, which is try to uh, have a successful career as a musician. And so that aspect was definitely, I think, a little bit difficult for people to get their head around. But once they started to see what it is, then it was really fascinating to see um, what they personally brought to it and what things were of interest to them as a person that they injected in their character in order to make things happen that I could not see happening. And that's one of the reasons I was intrigued by having the game out there is like, well, I have a certain background and, you know, I like a certain type of music and play a certain type of music, but other people don't necessarily have that. So what is it based on their background that they're going to bring to the game? And to see that was rather interesting. And and I know this isn't really directly attacking your question, but just to add to something Greg was saying is, um, we, we first keyed into that, story being much more about the character than what's going on in the larger world around them in games like apocalypse world even in games like masks where it's superheroes it's still at the end of the day the story is about the characters and the players get to really write their own stories in a way that that a lot of the games that people are used to playing that's just not the case um but I think that when we, and so that was a, a huge design principle for us was to really push that because that's, we enjoy those types of character driven stories. Right. Um, and I think when we did put it in this completely mundane 
non-fantastical everyday world i think maybe that was the thing that pushed it even that much further for people to really balk against um in ways that we hadn't quite seen in some of the other games what's funny to me about that is um you know i asked you the question about why high school and one of the thoughts that i had was that's how you create great big stakes because you know granted the three of us together are like two centuries old right and but but i remember vividly how big the stakes were in high school around everything (laughs) right exactly exactly like it mattered and and, and as a father now i've got a nine-year-old daughter one of the things that i promised myself was that i would never forget how important things were when i was nine and and you know and 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 i think you know coming into this game saying yeah are we going to take the ring to mordor no but i've got a crush on this girl and and she hasn't answered my note that i wrote and that was taking the ring to mordor when you were you know when you were in fifth grade when you're in fourth grade and 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 i think that um you know for you for the two of you to mechanically build that through and like having having a click having a a band like those were big stakes and to mechanically build that out is significant now when we're recording this you guys are very close to really kind of putting pushing this game out here and by the time when we release this we're going to coincide that to when really the public can get their hands on limelight the last little piece i want to talk about before we talk about some other things is i want to talk about the last jump so what i keep hearing is you're creating you're solving problems you fix this we're going to go low dice we're going to do this we're going to do that and i keep hearing about a thing that plagued the game from early on that kept plaguing you and kept plaguing you and then something happens right towards the end where you figured it out you added something to the game you took something away from it that made it all finally congeal and finally all click together the 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 gears clicked can either of you tell me really where you think that was when you started to go it might be time to take this thing out of the oven i can tell where i think it was for me so it's actually in a way closely related to the last jump because it comes around advancement so we had been for a long time talking about how we were mechanically going to handle the process of like how do you earn an advancement but the other half of that is okay well what does it mean what does it mean fictionally what does it mean mechanically um, and we had a lot of ideas and a lot of them were, were very much based on, on other games and the way that their advancement systems work. Um, and I'm, I'm, some of them still have some of that DNA, of course, but the big thing that came with thinking of that. So let me back up a step and say, what, there's, there is another pretty big mechanic that's been around almost since the beginning, um, called, um, uh, ego, um, if you take too many obligations, if you ever have to mark a fifth obligation anywhere on your sheet, you mark an ego. You get to clear all your obligations. Interesting. And you mark an ego. If you ever mark a fifth ego, you're out of the band. You have become too self-reliant, too uh, big-headed, too um, just you're doing you, your own you thing. You become Steve Winwood. <laughs> <laughs> um, exactly. Um, <laughs> um, so. So there is this 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 worry that, you know, if you're not dealing with your obligations, you might 
fail yourself out of the band. The band can continue and, and you would create a new character and be able to, to come in and, and continue to play, of course. But that And that was a very character. early mechanic that we wa- we wanted that, you know, your loyalty could continue to get so bad that you would eventually be forced to leave. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Oh, and, and I guess coinciding with that, each ego, you lose access to some of your uh, loyalty die types. So um, once you take your first ego, you'll, you can't, under normal, normal circumstances, access a D4 loyalty die anymore. Um, so your, your best loyalty is now a D6 because you have that chip on your shoulder, that little bit of ego in your way. So kind of in conjunction with that and in conjunction with kind of the length of the game we had been building, um, our game as Greg said, has a end state with a with a win and loss condition, which is I, I know a little bit um, abnormal in this space. But um, you're going to play for three per- three preparations and three performances. At the end of the third performance, um, you you have to win that performance. So each performance has a certain <laughs> number of uh, points you have to earn during the performance to win it. Um, you have to win that performance, and you have to have a certain renown threshold met. Um, that's cool going back and forth about what do these advancements mean how often are they actually going to happen we kind of realized like most characters aren't going to advance more than probably three maybe four times if you if you advance more than that you you can um it's it's possible with the number of scenes that are in the game and and uh it's possible to advance more than that but so we wanted the advancements themselves the mechanical advantage of them to be big um, and the way that we did that was um, we combined kind of smaller advances into bigger, more stronger advances. So um, what, what that ended up meaning was we ended up kind of slimming down a lot of the things that would most clearly track to something like a playbook move and having far less of them in our game. And we slimmed down the playbooks so that, sorry, they're not called playbooks in our game. Um, we slimmed down the bios um, so that nice. they each have one key change and one signature change. Um, <laughs> and that's it. And those are the things that are that are essential to that particular archetype for the so it was it was it, we've been in this process of just refining and distilling and honing. Um, and I think that was the last big piece that came together. We're like, we really don't need all of this. It isn't actually yeah. helping anything. Um, so what if we got, and rid we of found it? that our play testers really weren't engaging a lot of those other actions to be able to, um, explore their character. So it's, we decided let's just concentrate on the ones that really, speak to who that's character type is and yeah. leave it at those rather than give them all of these options, which they're not using. That is really, really cool. So, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to get into this, I think more in the second and the third segment, but I want to talk a little bit of here, you know, you, you've said it a few times. We've got now a win condition and we have a, this game is going to end at some point, right? This isn't the D&D campaign that goes on for 15 years. This is, you know, a, a little bit closer to like a band of blades where, you know, there's there's an end to this story. Now, how how long it takes to get there, we don't know, but there's this end point. Was that there from the beginning? 
um, or did that come in in the process? Do, when did you guys know that the, we're going to have a beginning, a middle, and an end? That was pretty early on. Um, was in it? fact, um, one of our early uh, one of our early ideas for how to gain experience <laughs> was um, to give players experience for ending the scene. Oh, that's interesting. So, because one of the things that <laughs> wrap your shit up. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's that button, right? The the, the wrap it up button. Um, because they they can tend to drag, and you know everybody's trying to get their yes. their their piece of the spotlight, and everybody, you know, and rightfully so. That's part of why you're here um, to play a game. We and maybe it's just our personal experiences, but we we run into a lot of that type of behavior um, in games. Um, so we we kind of toss that around, and we ended up basing our game around a set number of scenes per player scenes per oh player that's per, cool per, per preparation um and they're not they don't technically owned by the player so you know if i had a right. scene that i don't really know what i want to do with i can let your character do it but theoretically it's you know we have two or three each per it's a framework like fiasco right like you know mm -hmm. uh, it, it, yeah that's interesting yeah, yeah. So and it's a resource that the band overall has to be able to manage because they oh, only have cool. a certain they have a set number of scenes that they have in order to be able to deal with the things that they want to deal with before the next performance comes up. So it's always there ticking in the background. And every time you decide to do something, it really is like a TV show or a movie. There's a scene that's set yeah. and you know that that end thing is coming up. So what's most important to you to be able to handle before that big performance comes up where you have to shine on the stage? Right. Like, like, like it's no, it's literally the like that's literally like thematically fits in with it. Right. And um, I mean, you hear stories about, you know, the 50 year old guys that have been trying to make it you know, for 40 years now with their band. Right. But the, but the reality is, is that that's not what happens. Right. The reality is, is they, you know, people get together. We're going to make a run at this. And they do. And some make it very few do. But the vast majority of it, they all just go, well, we, we shot our shot. Right. We, 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 we took our shot at this and we did it. Um, that, that's fascinating, guys. That is absolutely fascinating. The last little piece before we move on is um, as I'm starting to digest this, one of the other things that I that I think is really makes me excited about reading this more is how much player and GM fodder you have built into this system right the the entire obligations and the issues and all of these things are gifts they're gifts mm -hmm. to the other players that are playing with you and they are gifts to the gm and i i can imagine some clever gms seeing this and going show me your character sheet now i know exactly what we're going to do this session right and i know how this scene is going to piece together um, which I, which uh, is a mechanic that we see in many different forms in a lot of different games. And, and I really am gravitating towards it um, and, and really finding that interesting. So, guys, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, um, I want to talk more about the relationship between board games and role playing games. We have two guys here that they found each other with a love of board games and now they're making a role playing game. And Greg and I, have, I think, have interacted a little bit on this topic before. I want to talk about how these two hobbies overlap and where they're separate. We'll be right back.
This is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content that you're listening to right now for free. That pitch man explains by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we refuse to interrupt your episode of Tabletop Talk with such time-wasting pleas. We pledge never to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month because supporting content creators keeps the content coming. Even if there is a link in the show's description, and there is, we don't ask you to click it and become a patron. We don't waste time rambling about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting episodes without ad breaks like this, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode knowing Tabletop Talk, despite being supported by its patrons, won't engage in such blatant appeals for support. The path you guys talked about is is surprisingly similar to mine, which is, you know, a big role player game, role playing game guy, miniature game guy in, in, in middle school and high school and into college. Then um, uh, I took a long break. And what brought me back to the hobbies, capital H hobbies, was board games and this board game revolution that was coming out of Europe and spread to here and playing games like Agricola and Power Grid and just, you know, saying like, holy shit, like this is not you know this is not scrabble like this is a whole new thing and and you know playing a board game and setting it down and thinking about that board game right playing magic the gathering for the first time just you know seeing uh tabletop gaming come back and that then i jumped to, back to role-playing games from there and, and you guys had a similar path and we talked about in the last segment a lot where i'm picking up a lot of the um influence uh, of board games and I, I guess my first question here is looking back on it now right limelight is almost fully baked did you go into it consciously saying there's shit in board games i really like and we need to see more of it in role-playing games yes or absolutely okay so it wasn't a situation <laughs> yes. where you're like oh shit i think we've got a lot of board game shit in here no, <laughs> so no, it was a conscious effort mm-hmm Yes. And why? So, so, so did, so to make that decision, you were trying to solve something, right? There was a problem you identified and this was going to be your answer to that problem. What was that problem? Why did you think we needed to see a game that, that took more from the best of board games? I think one of the big, uh, big things for both of us was the belief that, um, hard decisions in games are compelling um yeah you, know, uh, you talked about agricola do i take the family growth now or do i hope that it's there for me by my turn by, by my next placement or do i you know get stuck getting it next round um <clears throat> so we we think very highly of those types of interactions we think that those are important to gaming as a whole and we thought that they could be also important to these types of games, you know, we are telling stories together or participating in creating stories together. Um, but those hard choices 
they're important to board games, but they're also important to stories. They're the things that make stories interesting. Make them compelling. Do we go over over the mountains or do we go through the mines of Moria? Um, and you know, we definitely did that 100% on purpose for, for that reason, I think. And, and, you know, I think we also know that there are a lot of really cool mechanics mechanisms in board games that that yeah could be used and um i mean i'm not we, we didn't use all of them but we tried to use some right right and let's be honest there's there's and it was a it was a race right now the board games are winning and they went up by sprinting right um but like it it is a it's a more mature hobby than rpgs are um i think rpgs are starting to catch on to it but like you know things like you know writing clear rules um having rules that are specific and purposeful and uh interact with the with other rules um all of that stuff is stuff that was battles that were fought 20 years ago 15 years ago in board games and now we're you know we're seeing the fruit of it we're just now seeing the beginning of it but where you guys really leaned in was in the performance phase. So, uh, Greg, let's talk about that a little bit. Where, so someone listening right now is like, I really love board games. Wait till you do the performance phase. Can we talk about why? Performance was something that we decided to come up with early on because we like board games. And we thought about what kinds of things were touchstones for this sort of game that we're trying to do. It's a marriage of two things. It's being in a band, and it's also, we've sort of alluded to it, so I might as well bring it up now. We also wanted to um, attack coming of age. So that's where the issues and obligation system comes in. And it's about growing up and what things are important to you growing up, and how does that affect this other thing that you're trying to do, which is more adult, which is try to be able to create this career. And, and as we started to talk a little bit more about what things were important to these genres, we always came back to there was one thing that we felt that defined being in a band that we had to have in the game no matter what. And that was this idea of playing live in front of an audience. But how do we do that? What is it that we do? How are we going to model that? And because of, I think, our interest in board games, we decided to model it by creating a board game type experience that does model this idea of the collaboration between the band members together is what is going to be able to help decide whether or not you are successfully able to win over an audience. And we decided that the way to be able to ensure that that is an important touchstone is to make sure that no matter what, it happens. And in mm. our game, it happens no matter what, three times before the game yeah. is over and that you can't avoid it because that is a very important part for a band that um, is trying to be able to make it is to get out there in front of that audience and advertise that you can play and that you can play well. And that's how you get attention to yourself. And, um, and we felt that in order to be able to push that and, um, and to lean into this aspect of how important it is, and it's always sitting there looming, and you, you're, it's there just, just tapping you on the shoulder. Every, you've got all these other things you have to deal with, but nah, you have to do this in order to be able to... And that's the major way that you 
gain this resource called renown, which will indicate whether or not people in the world or in your community like you, um, you have to do that. And um, we said, well, as we thought about it, I think that we kind of came across the fact that we can kind of mechanically model this using mechanics that are very typical in board games. Um, so we focused on that very early on. And I would say that even though the percentage of time that you do it throughout the whole game, the whole game takes um, between eight and 12 sessions, each one being three and four hours each, the performance probably, once you get used to it, will probably take no more than an hour to be able wow. to do. And it only happens three times over those entire eight to 12 sessions. But Doing with the usual 80-20 rule, I would say that Derek and I probably spent close to 80% of our time really trying to hone the way that this works and trying things and it not being quite right. Having play testers do it and feeling like that it was either too difficult, that they weren't feeling like um, they didn't feel like they were accomplished musicians. And we didn't want or our live. musicians to be and we didn't want our musicians to feel like that they were terrible like yep. the point was is you've already created this band and you are capable to some degree so if you were always um doing badly when you're deciding what to do and the roles aren't coming up right we sound we found that that was um not encouraging to players yeah. so we would constantly tweaking the mechanics in order to say well how can we make it so that it's always on that you know as much as possible you're on that cusp <laughs> that you might win it but if it doesn't go quite right, mm, that audience isn't going to like that thing that you did. So they're like, eh, nah. Bring in Reiner Knizia. <laughs> right. So exactly. So we really spent a lot of time tweaking it so that it had that right feel. So that oh, you could cool. always feel like it's within your grasp, but that if you didn't do quite the right thing when the way that you decide to play the performance, that it would slip through your fingers. Well, and that's the thing about that, about board games that we have fallen in love with. That's what brings us back. Right. So if we play a board game and at, no, at the end of the board game, you lost and you have no idea why you lost. You're not going to try to play that game again. The games we love is when we lose at the board game and we go, man, if I had just done this, everything would have been different. So riding that cusp is huge. So, Derek, I'm curious for you, you know, with your extensive history and experience and now having made a role playing game. What are some untapped gold that still is in the board game sphere that hasn't really come over yet? So and it, and it may maybe it hasn't come over for a reason. But is is there some mechanics or things you're seeing in board games that you say, you know what, a smart RPG designer, maybe me someday needs to explore this because this can make the jump over. Can you think of anything that falls in that um, lane? Yeah, you know, kind of off the cuff. This is really kind of the first time I've thought about it. So, um, but yeah, I think what could be a very interesting role-playing game that I would definitely like to play is one that uses some deck-building mechanics. Um, Ooh. I mean, not necessarily to build your character, but maybe. Maybe that's part of it. But maybe also to build the situation, to build the environment. Yeah. Um, to give people the authority through the deck that they've built. Um, I think something like that could be a really interesting thing. Yeah, and that could be the RNG, right? So that could be, you know, get rid of the dice and do a little bit of like what they're doing with Weird and uh, Through the Breach. Um, has a little bit of a deck building aspect to it um, and uses that as, as, as the RNG. How about for you, Greg? Is there 
things that you're excited about that you're seeing happening mechanics or, or or approaches you're seeing in board games that you go you know someone needs to poke around with this a little bit it it, it could it could be adapted very good question and we spent so much time with this thinking about what we could do yeah. with board games that hasn't been here so mm. But, but there's you've since the beginning of Limelight and since the Limelight has been baked, you've played a lot more board games since then. Right. So there's no, not as much as I would not as much as I would like, unfortunately, is a problem due to due to this taking a lot of time due to COVID-19. So it doesn't come up as uh, as often as I would like to be able to. Play board is games. there an innovation? How many phrases a different ways? There is a recent innovation you've seen in game board design that has gotten you excited. So let's not even put it that it's adaptable. This is that's a tough question, actually. <laughs> I want a four page essay and I want it. Yeah, on exactly. My desk Whoa, boy, I'm going to fail at that one. Is <laughs> what it, um, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. I'm gonna, uh, well, let's do this. then. And I'm going to dismiss it. I'm going to spend renown. Too bad. The band's going to have to suffer for it. <laughs> You guys have been you've been way too involved in this for too long. I can hear it now. It's, it's really a lot. Yeah. Well, all right. You, so, Greg, I'm going to let you off the hook, but I'm going to use it to transition into really my favorite last segment of my interviews, which is finding out what creators love that other people are creating. So um, is there anything recently, Greg, that you have been playing, reading, watching, uh, grabbing the controller and losing a Sunday like I just did yesterday with freaking Ghost Recon on my Xbox. <laughs> what what lately has gotten its hooks into you that you have that that you weren't a part of making? It's all kinds of stuff that I'm not part of making that uh, that interests me. But something that really like like took over think, your life for a period of time. <laughs> I think the things that it, it's actually kind of a going back in time to some degree, as I mentioned earlier, video games have always been a really big cornerstone of uh, mm -hmm. my entertainment um, interests. And in the late nineties and early two thousands, I was really, really into first person shooter games. I'm a very big fan of id software. So when Wolfenstein 3D came out. I played it to death. Then they came out with Doom and I played that to death. And they came out with Quake 1, Quake 2, and Quake 3. I played them all to death. I was part of an online clan and we tried to get better at it in order to play competitively. I went to QuakeCon like every year for 10 years in Mesquite, Texas in order to be able Isn't to... Isn't it crazy knowing that, that Sandy Peterson was there making that stuff? Uh, yeah, it is crazy. <laughs> and, you know, I... um. I got to meet people like Janelle Jacques, actually, oh, when yeah. I went to QuakeCon. So it was like even then when I wasn't really doing role playing games, I got to meet people who were really important to the industry and get to be able to talk to them about these sorts of things. So that was really interesting. Um, what I found is that as time went on, these kinds. So first person shooters are really something that I love. And then as time went on, they, they kept iterating and changing and changing and changing. What we're seeing now over the last few years is that people are going back to that kind of style that was popular in the 90s and early 2000s. And they have a term for them. They call them boomer shooters, not because baby boomers play them. Not I'm not a baby this. boomer. I'm a Gen X. But because, you know, they things go boom when you, you do that. Up. Exactly. So... And people are doing amazing things with them. They are taking either these old engines, like the Doom engine, and they're modifying them to an extraordinary degree in order to be able to do really cool things, or they're able to use the affinity, the um, 
well, what's that engine now that uh, I can't remember now? It's not Unreal. Um, no, no, not the Unreal engine. Is it Unity? To edit this out while I think. And the Unity engine. Thank you, Derek. Ah. Yes. So the Unity engine is really popular in order to make first-person shooter games. But um, when I found these, I realized that there are people now that are able to take what was really exciting about those games, the running and gunning and the constant action and the feel of having the right weapon against the right enemy and to be able to get that rhythm as you play through a level. And people are kind of grasping onto that and making some incredible shooters with that. So ones that I've played that I really like a lot. Um, Dusk is one that I recommend, which looks a lot like Quake and was really, really popular. There was one that was kickstarted called Proteus that just recently came out that everyone can do. There's another fantastic game called Salako, which has a combination of fear and Half-Life to it. So you can't quite run and gun quite as much. You do have to be careful about it because the enemies are extraordinarily smart. And it uses the original Doom engine, but they added so many fantastic technical effects to it. It's a really glorious game to play. The most interesting one that seems to become that's going about to come out, and I saw that its release date is January 2nd, is this game that's called Chop Goblins. It's made by these people um, that made Dusk, which was really, really popular. Um, what's amazing about it, and again, they, they haven't really released very much other than what it's about and to talk about. It. What I find incredible about it is that they have decided, instead of having an experience that lasts a really long period of time, like most first-person shooter does, it supposedly provides a first-person shooter experience in about 30 minutes. Wow. And they wanted you to be able to get that rush that comes from playing an entire campaign of playing all these different types of enemies that you meet and that you, you run into and the different kinds of weapons that you gather little by little that make you feel more powerful and be more powerful as you go along. But to somehow get that experience down for the type of people that play games now we don't necessarily have as much time as we did back then and you want the experience of um a kind of a a cell phone game where it's a casual thing that you you only have a few minutes to play so i'm really intrigued to see in january what this chop goblins game is like my understanding is is that you play a character which attempts to try to steal something from a museum and you find some kind of box or something like that and open it up and these goblins come out and they start oh, causing havoc cool. and you have to go through different time periods in order to um, try to diffuse the situation. So I'm really curious how they can get all of this in this play period that's supposedly only 30 to 60 minutes. So I'm very excited by this, that people are doing this, but still trying to innovate over what was done in the 90s and early 2000s. Well, we've talked on the show a lot about the um, how more accessible it is to be a creator in the RPG world, right? With the publishing software becoming something that's, you know, that anybody can own now. There's free publishing software out there with drive-through RPG and the, the PDF technologies. Has a lot of people to create games that couldn't, um, when Greg and I were young, couldn't create games. The barriers were there. You're seeing the same thing in video games. The innovations in the indie video games, what some guy or gal in their in their after in their evenings after work are putting together these incredibly innovative incredible games it's it's absolutely stunning how about for you derek what is what is something that just recently has kind of took over your life a little bit um well i don't have as much time to play as i'd like um as much <laughs> as i used do. to have uh so i'm very far behind on on my video game playing 
but I did finally get around to playing uh, Horizon Zero Dawn. So I'm, I'm working through that campaign slowly and uh, getting a real real kick out of that. Um, What's working for you on that game? What'd they get right? I don't know. I just like the feel of it. I like the feel of the, the movement, the combat, um, the stealth. Uh, crafting is cool. Uh, there's just a lot of cool things. Uh, the kind of the the setting and and uh, theme is kind of cool of the you know post fall of humanity rise of you know robots and whatnot. Um, so it, definitely enjoying that. Um, I watch uh, probably more TV than than anything else. Um, and uh, the show that just came back and I'm I'm super into is uh, Mythic Quest on apple tv i i've what is this i've never heard of it's this it's called it's called mythic quest um it's it's about um the the team that, who makes a online mmo rpg video game um it's a comedy um it stars rob McElhenney and uh and david hornsby um and it's it's very good it also has a uh, danny pudi in it playing a very not abed character which i appreciate a lot um so it's, it's an excellent show and, and and it's it's interesting how many times i've been watching it and go oh that seems very familiar to what i'm dealing with this from a you know that reminds me of our game um and then uh the other one i, I can't talk enough about it's it's uh probably a little bit more mainstream is um reservation dogs um which is on hulu um and that's kind of a it's it's centered around a a group of teenage uh teenagers on a oklahoma um and it's got that kind of coming of age thing that also kind of reminds me of of our games in some ways but uh, but uh, it's also just really good show and if anybody isn't watching it they, they should give it a shot all right last last but not least eric uh, i need you to help me complete this phrase if you love X and Y, you're going to have a lot of fun playing Limelight. If you love character-based stories, narratives, and the decision-making of tactical, tactical decision-making of playing board games and work placement games and probably more specific action selection games, um, you'll love Limelight. How about for you, Greg? How, what, what would be your X and Y? If you are currently a high school student and you are right now going through the trials and tribulations of trying to make music in your own band, you will find everything to love about Limelight. That's who we're making it for. That kid who's out there who is trying (laughs) to make it themselves and is looking for empathy and compassion with what it is that they are going they will find a lot to like and a lot that they relate to if they play our game. Oh, that's fun. That's a lot of fun. Gentlemen, this has been fantastic. Um, I've really enjoyed learning about, you know, your process of really excited about Limelight. Uh, those listening now, uh, we've got links to everything, including that, including where you can get the game. Uh, so just, you know, you know what to do. Scroll down. All those links are there. Um, Greg, for those listening uh, who want more Greg, where do they go? <laughs> they can find me at Twitter at glauer42. They can also send me an email at greg at session1studios.com. And if they want more Derek? I am not really on Twitter, um, but you can reach 
Session One Studios as a whole on Twitter at uh, Session the Number One Studios, um, and we try to man that and answer any questions. You guys have. Okay, good. <laughs> Very wonderful. Uh, Derek, there's a lot of things to do on a Monday night, but you spent it with me and I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been great. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been great talking to you. And it's fun. And uh, Greg, this was long overdue. Um, I was super excited and uh, it was even more fun than I thought it would be. That's great. We really had a great time and um, we can't appreciate enough um, the time that you've taken to speak to us and listen in uh, with what we have to say and uh we hope that there are people out there who will check out our game and please come and talk to us if you have any questions we're really excited to be able to get it out there and for people to be able to get a taste of what we've been working on for now over two years well I, and i hope you guys are prepared because when this drops my seven listeners there might be one that buys this game you understand that right <laughs> if we get one then it'll be more than the zero that we're expecting so i'm pretty excited by that <laughs> all right actually by the time this release we might have eight listeners um, um guys uh, speaking of eight listeners um you listen oh go ahead Derek. i was just gonna say um if it's possible we can give you information on our discord and things like that if you want to put it in the show notes when it drops I'll put that all. Yeah. What? What? Uh, yeah. I'm going to have a huge ask for you at the end of this, guys. You have homework. It's, it's going to really suck. Um, <laughs> so uh, last but not least, for those of you that are listening, you listen to this whole thing. Uh, it was super interesting, but you stuck with it the whole time. And I want you to know how much I appreciate you. Take care. episode subscribe to tabletop talk and share it with your friends check out our content on youtube and twitch follow us on twitter and facebook and stay updated on everything coming from third floor all the links are in the show notes take care floor heads So speaking of going off the call sheet, I, I'm di ditching the system matters things. This this concept of you okay. guys coming from board games and hearing so right. much related to board games in this design, I think is what really makes this interesting. So if it's, you guys will humor me, I want to explore right. that no, some more. It's it's worth talking about because we haven't got to talk about it. The performance is very much a board game and okay, that's on great. purpose. So Great. it's and probably a chance to get into that. Perfect. It's really, really interesting. The other thing that's worth noticing um, that's worth mentioning is that the GM does not set the scenes. We've put the um, we put the agency in the players. The players decide who what the scenes are and yeah. what it is that they do. And the GM gets two scenes. Yeah, with a few exceptions, but. We really Ooh, wanted the, the players to be able to decide through their characters what things are important to them before the performance comes up. And I'm smelling more and more Jason Morningstar in this, and that's a compliment, right? That 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 concept of that fiasco or the uh, Cordova does it with Brindlewood Bay, which is, is you know what? We can even let the players do this piece too, right? We're so used right. to the GM it's, sets the stage, but we don't have to do that. So that's interesting. Right. All right. I, I counted today that there are actually about six games that are very strong influences. And one of them is Primetime Adventures. So that has, oh. I don't know if you've played Primetime Adventures. I've read but it. But that has a thing where all of the characters are working, you know, to create this television drama and they're really driving it. So that oh, was cool. a touchstone as well.
Yeah. Um, I'll bring bring us. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's there's definitely it was it it took me for a while for me to tease it out, um, but I'm really loving the fiasco aspect of it. All right. I'll bring us back. So, um, good stuff, guys. Good, good, good stuff. It's all right. We don't suck. Thanks. (laughs) Well, if I can just get you talking. <laughs> you, you, there's not a, never a problem with getting me talking, unfortunately. No, so please, and, definitely and, and, and crank no, me down was, if it, I'm talking too was, much. It was good, and, De- and Derek, I appreciate it. You, you started getting into the groove, man. It, it uh, sometimes it's hard uh, to go through this, but uh, I, I, I saw it happen. Like you were struggling at the beginning, and then you just kind of jumped in. So I appreciate you trusting me and doing that, man. Sure, sure, no problem. <laughs> Are you still here? Wow. Um, well, the episode is over, but if you're bored, why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month? Yeah, you can just scroll down. Scroll down and, yeah, get the link. It's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway... Thanks for sticking around. Take care.